in this church said amen, huh? Glory to his name. Glory to his name. This morning, I'll start off by saying happy Easter to you. Uh, happy Resurrection Day. And uh, I want to just, those of you who have heard me preach before, you see that we had 31 verses I'm supposed to get through this morning. And um, I'm not even going to start there. I'm going to start over somewhere else, but we will get to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John in a moment. Um, I wanted to take a moment and share with you what, about the Apostle Paul. Um, he dedicated an entire chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, to the resurrection. It's one of the longest, if not the longest, New Testament chapter in, in, uh, in the Bible. 58 verses he spent on the resurrection. And so I wanted to just read something to you real quick. And listen, if you're here as a guest, as a visitor, and um, uh, you, your family has asked you to come and you've agreed to come, welcome, welcome. And uh, I want you to know something. Uh, what we're about to talk about takes a great deal of faith to be able to believe in it. But it doesn't mean you put your brain on park. You don't put your brain over here when you have faith. Faith is an emotional thing, we understand that, but it also has a lot of intellect involved in it. And the Word of God is full of evidence of a resurrected Savior. The Word of God is full of evidence of a resurrected Savior. And so I would say, as um, I would say it this way the story of Good Friday without the resurrection means nothing. And the story of the resurrection without Good Friday is irrelevant. So I think that I want to just read a little bit about um, from, from the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to stay in there a little while and we'll talk about some of that and then we'll, we'll get to chapter 20 eventually. I want to thank our pastor Tim Ballstrom last Sunday for doing such a marvelous job of describing, yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. He makes my job much simpler today because he handled the crucifixion, the death and the burial of our Savior. And then if you happen to be with us on Good Friday, we got to hear that you got to get under the blood. You have to get under the blood. You have to in, take Jesus in and get under the blood. We learned that on Friday night from our pastor, Emeritus Phil Howard, who did a marvelous job also. So we say thank you. So you're here this morning, and those of you who have believed, I, I think that this is celebratory. Those of you who have already placed faith in Christ, you're like, yes, yes, the resurrection. That's the difference. Others have claimed to be God. Others have claimed to be Jesus, and they died, and they were buried, and they stayed there. Amen? They stayed there. This Jesus, who claimed to be God, was resurrected. And all the difference in that. I was telling them in the early service, you have three legs to the stool that you want to sit on. Three legs. The death, his crucifixion on a cross. He died. He did the tetelestai. It is finished. I paid the price for your sins on the cross. And I've died there. They stabbed him with a spear, went all the way up into his heart. He didn't move. He was dead. And then they took him down and they buried him. That would be like a lot of other 
people that had claimed to be the Messiah. But oh, three days later, three days later was where we're at now. He's resurrected. So what is it that you must believe in? What is it? So we have the two legs, the death and the burial, and we're doing the third leg today. That's a stool you can sit down in. How many of you like to sit on a two-legged stool? It's a lot of work. But a three-legged stool, I can rest on. And the third leg is the resurrection. All right? So let's just look at it real quick. In, in chapter 15 of, of uh, 1 Corinthians, this is what Paul says. First four verses I'll read to you. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And this is also regarding what you have if Christ wasn't resurrected. What would happen if, you, if he hadn't been resurrected? What would we be doing today if he hadn't been resurrected? What if the resurrection is not true? Well, Paul talks about that, verse 16 of that same chapter. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. Isn't that interesting? He says, if the dead aren't raised, if the dead in the future are not raised, then Christ was never raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. It's worthless. You are still in your sins if he hadn't been resurrected. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope. They perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection and you've only hoped in what you saw in this life from him, you're to be pitied. Another thing I notice about Paul here is from the very onset of his Damascus Road experience. You see, he was a persecutor of Christians. He was killing preachers. He was killing and prosecuting the church. He was persecuting the church. He was adhering to and approving of people being killed who were following after Christ. That's what he was. But then on his way, on his journey to Damascus, I'm sure to do more of the same, Jesus met him on the road he met him on the road and the, he said that when Jesus appeared he said why are you persecuting me and the light was so bright that it fell on his face off of his donkey and on his face and all that were with him were on their face too but from that very moment he went from persecuting Christians to becoming a Christian. Yeah. He went from saying, 
He's not the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. You got it wrong. I'm defending the Jewish culture in reality. I'm saying they've got it wrong. He's not come yet. But after that experience, he could only say he's here. He's present. He's current. But from that moment until his dying breath, Paul became a man that was reasoning with other men. He wanted to reason with them. And guess what? In the book of John, it's all written that you might reason with, he, that he might reason with you. That this is a true Christ. He's resurrected. He, he is alive today. And by taking him in and accepting that, you can have eternal life, he says. Eternal life. Not temporary life. Eternal so all of that happens, but John, but but in this passage, he's showing it. In in Acts, listen to this. In Acts, he says this in 17. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them at the synagogue for three Sabbath reason, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. There's no other one. This is the one. So Paul is reasoning. And then John is reasoning in this book that he wrote. And guess what? I'm here this morning trying to reason with you also. I'm saying, don't put your brain in a closet and say, oh, you got to have, it takes too much faith and I don't have it. And you're right, it probably does. But there's too much evidence to deny it. There's too much evidence to deny it. What I'm afraid of is that you have decided that the evidence is not true and you've never even looked at it. And you know what you're betting? You're betting your eternal soul and you've never even checked it out. I will buy you a Bible if you don't have one. Yes, I won't take it out of the church fund. I'll buy it out of my fund. I want you to know the Savior today. And the way to know him is get in the book. And if you don't, if you deny him, what are you denying if you haven't even seen what he said he was? Don't bet your eternal soul on no evidence other than just your not unbelieving heart. Would you at least open the book and read it and look at the evidence? Paul, when he got saved, he couldn't not reason with men. An educated Highly intelligent man reasoning with the Jewish synagogues. He didn't go out just to street evangelism. He went right to the synagogue and told them, you're wrong. The Messiah's here. He's died. He's been buried and he's resurrected. He's done it all. All you have to do is believe. And, they, and he reasoned with them. He reasoned with them. Look at this in 19. In chapter 19 and verse 8 of Acts. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. He went to the synagogue every day for three months. And he, and he, and he did this, listen to these verbs. Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. You know what my job is this morning? My job is to do 2 Corinthians 5. I'm to be the ambassador of Jesus Christ asking you to be reconciled, pleading and begging with you, reasoning with you to take in Jesus Christ that you might be reconciled to God the Father. That's why we're here this morning. And if you got drug here this morning because 
your mother-in-law brought you and she's got lunch for you later. Well, that's good. I'm glad you're here. I hope that your appetite, your physical appetite gets met later, but I'd love to see your spiritual appetite happen this morning. I move along in Acts with Paul's life and I get to chapter 26 and I see that he is in a trial. He's, he's in a trial for his life and he's brought before King Agrippa. And King Agrippa says, you can represent yourself in the trial, which they didn't always allow, but they allow him to do it. And there presiding with him, the one that actually brought this to, together was a man named Festus and he was the governor of the region. You had a king, but you had the governor that represented Rome, and he's there, and he's presiding. And what does Paul do? He says, I got to let you know, king. I love it. He said this, in regards to, he says, Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. And look what he says. I love this. Look what he says. He says, in regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions about the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I beg you this morning, listen to me patiently. He's telling him, he's saying, I feel fortunate. I'm in chains. I'm about to die more than likely. I'm in a cold, damp prison. And I haven't done anything I've done nothing wrong. Even King Agrippa says it later. I've seen nothing in the man that he's done that makes him, if he hadn't called on Caesar, he'd be, we would let him free. But he's in chains. And so he begins to explain to King Agrippa, I used to persecute the Christians, what we talked about earlier. He tells him that whole storyline. And he gets there and he says this. He gets to this point. This is amazing to me. He talks for a while and he's expressing his testimony of how he got saved, how he met the Savior on that Damascus journey. And he says that, and here's this way he says, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim the light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Thank God for the Gentiles included in this. And look at what happens. While Paul was saying this in his defense. Now, he hadn't been interrupted at all yet. But the minute he mentions the resurrection, Festus says this. He steps up. He says, he said, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth, and I ain't, I'm not here to talk to you, Festus. I came to talk to King Agrippa. So, settle down over there. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't hidden in a closet. People knew about it. It had been foretold. And then it took place, and they knew. This wasn't in a corner. I'm talking to Agrippa because he knows this. He understands these things. 
Okay, so what does he understand? Let's get back to chapter 20 now. I said we would get to chapter 20 of John. So let's do that. We're not done with Paul. We'll come back to him in a little while. But I just want to show you, there's a description of the evidence of the resurrection. And here's this, there's a man named Chesterton, and I don't even know where he's from. I just saw this, and I, and I wrote it down. This is what he said. So many people have rejected Jesus, not because they have considered the evidence and found it wanting, but because they have never considered the evidence. I talked about that earlier. I wrote it in here, so I want to read it right there where I wrote it. If you're here this morning and you just go, this is a bunch of hogwash. I don't believe any of it. Have you listened yet? Have you reasoned with the facts yet? That's why I said I'll buy you a Bible. You can read it in all the Gospels. It's in all of them. Listen, we're going to read it now, and I'll say just a few remarks. I had a wise man tell me, when you have 31 verses of narrative to do, let the narrative speak. Let it speak, and that's what we're going to do. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who's the other disciple? Do you guys know? It's John. When he talks about another disciple, he's talking about himself. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. You see, she doesn't understand that he's been resurrected. She only knows the body's missing. She's been to the tomb and he's gone. And where is he? No one knows. So Peter and the other disciple went forth. And they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead, of, ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. I told him in the early service, if I was telling the story, that's how I'd tell it. I got there first. I outran that guy. All right. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he did not go in. He stayed on the outside. He looked in and saw the linens were there. His, his burial linens. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. That doesn't surprise any of us about Peter, does it? He just went right in. Doesn't that sound like Peter? Peter was a true leader, if you think about it. And he went right in to the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been, had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and he believed. So I'm imagining that Peter gets there, runs inside, sees what's going on, and goes, John, you've got to come in and check this out. So then he comes in, and they look at it together. They look at it together. And so I'm not sure they remembered this, but in John 2, the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things that you're doing, these miracles? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build the temple, and will you raise it up in three days? See, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures. Mm. 
We go on. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture. They didn't understand it fully yet. And obviously, Mary didn't understand it. She thought he'd been stolen. That he must rise again from the dead. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now, I'm going to tell you, that troubles me a bit. And it probably will trouble you if you really think about it. This Lord and my Savior, my Lord and my Savior, who I've followed around for three years, I've slept in the same places as him. I've ministered in the same spots as him. I've done all kinds of things. He's helped kept us fed. He kept us covered. He did all these things. And now they've stolen his body, and I just go back home. That seems odd to me. But it's the true reporting. They just went back home like nothing happened. But Mary, and, and then just so you know, in the other Gospels, Mary didn't get back to the tomb until they had left. And she gets back to the tomb. This is what's going on. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And what did she see? She said, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. I want to point out something here. The men went back home. The men went home. Mary went back to the tomb. The men had lost their courage. We're going to see that a little bit later. They were hiding out. They were afraid of the Jews. And is usually the case when men lose the courage, guess who show up? Women. Women show up. And who does he present himself to first? Mary Magdalene. This woman who had been demon-possessed, the lowest to blow, he presents himself to her first. Let's read it. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Because, see, she didn't understand that he'd been resurrected. She thought he'd been stolen. And they're like, why are you weeping? They knew he'd been resurrected. She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. I don't know where he's at. I don't know where they took him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Okay? He was in a glorified body, and her regular human eyes could not see the glorified body in the same way. She couldn't identify him. Her eyes still couldn't understand the glorified body that he had. When she had said this, oh, excuse me, woman, why are you? She said, okay. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Same, same question. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Now, come on. She, was, she definitely could not tell who he was because she, she just claimed that Jesus was the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Not only is he a gardener, but he stole Jesus' body now. And Jesus said to her, and this is so important. I love this. This is such an intimate moment. Jesus said to her, Mary. But he said it more 
with exclamation. Mary! And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? He just went from the gardener to Rabboni. How did she recognize him? Oh, look what he says in John 10. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. When he called her name, when he called her by name, she recognized the voice. Wow. And what does she do? Well, the next thing he tells her is, stop clinging on to me. Well, that would tell me she probably just grabbed him at that point. You're not getting away again. We already buried you, but you're alive, and I'm not letting go of you now. But he says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I'm going to have to go to the Father, and if you keep holding on to me, you're going with me, and I'm not supposed to bring anybody with me yet. But go to my brethren. First time he's ever called the apostles and the disciples brethren. Right here, first time. And say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father. Oh my goodness. He identified with them as brethren. He identifies his Father as their Father now. Oh, if that doesn't get you excited, you should, you should dance in the aisles. Don't do it though. We'll think something's weird. And my God and your God. Huh. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and, they, and that he had said these things to her. Okay? Now then, in other gospels, he says that they came to him, the women came to them, and said, we have found the Savior. The Savior's alive, he's living, he's well. This is what they said, right? And in that, what happens is, the disciples at that point just kind of went, yeah, we ain't buying that yet. No, nah, we don't believe that. That's really what happened there. But in this gospel, it just says that this, that, and he, she came and told him, and then, but where did they go? They didn't go anywhere still. I, you would think they'd be going, wait a minute, he's, he, he talked to you? Where was that at? Let's go find him. No. So, so when it was evening on that day, so that, at nighttime, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, they barred the doors for fear of the Jews. They were afraid of the Jews because they had just watched them crucified and have Christ crucified by the Romans. So they were fearful. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Okay, that's interesting. The door's barred and he just comes in the room. Find that a little interesting? I find that very interesting that he's just all of a sudden in the room. Nothing can hold Christ back. There's no walls that stop him from getting where he wants to go. It reminds me, you know, there's some that say that in the tomb there, that when they found the linens there, that he just came up through the linens and they just fell there. Or some believe they were, because they had wrapped him with uh, oils and, and uh, different aromatic things to make the body not smell, that it may have even been kind of casted together, kind of glued in a position, and that he just came through that. 
Others don't believe that, but I've read that in some commentaries. And then I, I look at this and go, well, wait a minute, if he could go through walls and just be in the room with them, surely he could just do that too. There's nothing within, that's nothing that's out of his reach. Okay, so anyway, so he's, all of a sudden he's in the midst of them. And they're in fear. Remember, they're fearful of the Jews. And he stood in their midst and he said to them, what's he say to them? He says, shalom. Peace be with you. This is how he greets them. And when he had said this, he showed him both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So not only are you seeing me in my resurrected form, and not only am I with you right now, not only has your fear turned into joy, because you went from fearful to rejoicing as you saw the Lord, okay? And in some of the Gospels, it says that he was hungry, and they fed him. He ate. Uh, and, and then this, this line here. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. I think he breathed on them. He's not telling them, I'm going to breathe the Holy Spirit on you right now because that doesn't come until later on. That comes in Acts at the day of Pentecost. But I think he's saying, I'm breathing on you so you'll recognize I'm real. I'm a real person. You can feel my breath even in the room. I can eat with you. You can touch me. I can touch you. You can, I mean, you've got a lot of truths coming out here. A lot of things that are happening. He's presenting himself to multiple people. And they're seeing that he has a real body, that he's really alive. And he says this. Well, the author goes, John goes on. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, because he was a twin, and that was a term twin, I believe, was not with them when Jesus came into the room that night. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. We've seen him with our own eyes. We touched him. But he said to them, Thomas says to them, unless I see him, unless I see in his hands the imprints of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, look, those of you who know the, the scriptures, you know that we call this Thomas Doubting Thomas. Okay? It seems to me like he's asking the same questions in this six, section as the disciples did earlier. He just says, you got to see him and touch him and feel him. I'm just saying I'm not going to believe it until I get to do the same. Ah, but something else was going on. As we read on, we see that there was more to it than that with Thomas. Listen to this. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with him and Jesus came into the room again, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, Shalom. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your fingers and see my hands. And I can just imagine Jesus reaching to Thomas and saying, here, grabbing his hand, feel my hand, feel it, feel it, it's flesh. I got scars here. Here, feel my side. Put your fingers in there. I want you to know. So reach here with your fingers and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do 
not be unbelieving. Hebrews 3 says that some people have an unbelieving spirit in them. And he's warning him here, stop being of an unbelieving mind and a spirit. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. If you're here this morning and you're going, this is a bunch of hogwash, it's a bunch of foolishness, you've got a spirit of unbelieving. Oh, I'd like to see you have a spirit of believing before you leave here. But watch what happens. Thomas answered him and said to him, one of the greatest confessions you'll ever make. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Amen? So there's a few effects of the power of the resurrection that I saw in this passage. One was they went from fear to rejoicing, the disciples. He's presented himself to a bunch of people here. In 1 Corinthians, if we look a little bit lower in the passage from where I left off, if we look in there, that 1 Corinthians 15, he says that when he went to ascend, when he was ascending there, he, there was 500 men that watched him ascend. Now that's just representing the men. There were probably women and children too. They got to see him ascend. And he didn't go like this. Bam, I'm gone. No, no, no. They got to watch him ascend. You ever have your child that you give them that, you buy them that $25 helium balloon that's worth about four bucks and, and, they, and they let go of the string and, and they're crying and you're saying, oh, watch it, watch it, watch it. You can watch it just keep going up. I believe that's how Christ ascended. He was, it was evident to all they could watch him go. That's in his resurrected body, people. The evidence is overwhelming for resurrection. It's overwhelming. But that gets us to the whole crux of the whole book. Like Paul says in Corinthians and in Romans and in Acts, they say that Paul says, I want to go and reason with you. I want to engage your mind. Don't just, if you're here thinking that we've all as believers just believe because it's an emotional thing to do. Oh, I just believe it. Okay. No, that's not what we did. We were produced Someone produced the truth of Scripture to us and we read it and we said, you can't refute it, so it must be true. That's what happens. I want to engage your mind. I got people in the room that have been to college that they have to defend everything by giving sources. Right? You ever been to college? Every paper you write, you got to defend your sources. I'm going to defend my sources right here in this book. That's my source. But this is what he gets to. From fear to rejoicing, from disbelief to confidence. You think about it. Thomas went from, I will not believe until I put my hands in his, in his hand and in his side. He went from that to he's my Lord and my God. So he went from what? Disbelief to confidence in who he was. And then we get to this verse 30 and 31, the whole purpose of John's writing is, here we go, right here in these two verses. And this is what I hope for you today. If you're here today without Jesus Christ, 
You've never met him. Your transgressions cause you to be in a dead relationship to God the Father. That's what it causes. Your, your sin keeps you separated from the Father. Ah, but you can go from death to life this morning. You can go from death to life this morning. This is what John's whole purpose was for writing the book. Therefore, he says, after, after 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who do not see, who did not see me and yet believe. And then he says this, therefore, therefore, he's wrapping the whole book up in reality in this statement. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book that I wrote. I've already got 20 chapters. My hand is tired from writing. And I could write on and on and on and still not cover all of it. But these have been written. Why? Why, John, did you spend so much time doing this? I wrote all this down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that believing you may have life in his name and not life here eternal life is what he's talking about so I'm going to present evidence to you that's the reasoning part I present evidence to you that he was resurrected he, he presented himself to probably thousands in his resurrected form we know that he did it to at least five or six hundred we, you just, it's, it's there in 1 Corinthians. So we present the evidence that he truly was resurrected. We, we watched him die on a cross. He was truly dead. They stabbed him with a spear. A spear went all the way up into his heart, they said. And he didn't even move. And the Romans were great at knowing if someone was dead. He did this all the time. They said, he's dead. There's no need in breaking his legs because he used to break their legs so that they would asphyxiate faster and they wouldn't have to be standing there waiting forever for a person to die. They were on overtime. So they would break their legs to make sure they died sooner. So they stabbed him and just to confirm it. Just to confirm it, that he was dead. And he did not move. He was dead. So they buried him. Now he's resurrected. This is what John is saying. He goes, now look, look, I'm not telling you all this. Okay, here's the, you're here this morning. All right, there's the facts. Okay, well, I'm glad you came. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh-uh. I'm not wasting this opportunity. I'm ambassador. I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And you are too. If you believed in him, he said, you're his ambassador. And so this morning, my job is to do this, to beg and plead with you that you might be reconciled to him because of what Jesus Christ did on a cross for you and because he was buried and because he was resurrected. It's the difference. Resurrection's the power. It's made the difference. So I come and I say, I need a response. I need to, I, I'm, I'm gonna tell you this and then I'm gonna tell you what you need to do. I'm identifying it by believing in that passage, by believing these things I've written down for you, you might have eternal life. I want you to believe this this morning. You know, I, I'm, I used to sell, I used to be a salesman. You gotta close the deal. I wanna close the deal. 
Now, it takes God to do that. I can't close it completely. But if he's talking to your heart today, if he's talking to you, please don't leave here without making that. Please, please don't leave without making a decision for him. What must you do? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and give you a couple things real quick. Same book, John. Listen to this. If you're here today and you're sitting back in your seat and you're going, I don't need this because I'm a good person. I'm a good guy. All right? Or if you're sitting in your chair and you go, he can never accept me because of the things I've done. Oh, let me show you chapter three. Let me show you Nicodemus, the religious leader, the guy that had it all together. And after meeting with Jesus in the dark, he had to meet with him privately because he didn't want anybody to see that he was questioning things. After he met with Jesus and talked to him, he realized the only way I can get where I need to go, which is heaven, is through Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. So that was the good. He's way up here. And in chapter 4, he says to his disciples, we must go through Samaria because I've got an appointment with a woman at the well. And she is an absolute wreck. She's a mess. She's been married five times. She's living with a man. Yeah, living with a man without being married to him in Bible times. See, we've kind of accepted that in our culture. It's okay if you live with them. No, it's not. But in here, she's a mess. Five marriages, living with a man, having to draw water in the well, from a well in the middle of the afternoon in the heat of the day because she couldn't even hang out with the other people. They wouldn't let her hang out. That's the lowest of low people. So you are either up here today saying this or you're way down here saying it. And I'm going to tell you right now, the only answer for you is Jesus Christ. Whether you're there, there, or in the middle somewhere. <laughs> Believing this will do it. Believing these truths about him will get you to heaven. And only these truths. Don't try and be good enough. You won't be. It's finished already. Remember, we talked about that last Sunday. The work is done. And it wasn't done by you. It was done by Jesus Christ. If you could do it, it's a mess. I promise you. Okay. Final, final thing. I think this is a simple illustration. I, I hope it is for you. It better be now because I said it was a simple illustration. A visual. Um, this. You see that? Can everybody see that? That's a rag that until this morning was in my wife's kitchen drawer nice and white and really really super clean and I took it out and I wiped the tires off on my truck trying to get them clean and you say why do I show you this what relevance does this have with the resurrection or the message this morning well I think it's simple enough a while back I heard I heard another preacher say this and I grasped that I, I got a hold of it in my mind and I went wow that's true he said this he said, in order to get something clean, something's got to get dirty. In order to get something clean, something's got to get dirty. Now, he wasn't even saying it in a theological way. We were talking about something completely unrelated. But I grasped it, I thought, I realized, you know what? That's the story of the gospel in my mind. I'm like, wait a minute. For you and I to get clean, Christ had to come to the earth and get dirty. What's more dirty than sin in God's? There's nothing more dirty than sin in God's, in God's realm. 
And he who knew no sin became sin that you might receive his righteousness. So he became dirty that you might become clean. For you to be whole, Christ had to be broken. For you and I to be free, Christ had to be enslaved. You see, you'll never be able to wash anything again without thinking of this illustration. So if you're here as an unbeliever and you go, ah, good luck washing your car again. Good luck taking a washcloth to yourself in the shower because that washcloth's got to get dirty to get you clean. But Jesus Christ came willingly, spotless lamb of God, spotless, and he took on sin, took on all the filth of the world on your behalf. One more thing that Paul said, and then I'll be quiet for now. Said this in Romans 10, 9, and I want to read it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. See, a lot of us stop right there when we quote this verse. We say, if you confess him with your mouth and believe him with your heart, then and believe him in your heart, now you're saved. And that's not what it says. You left something out. Listen. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. What do you need to do this morning? Confess him with your mouth. Confess what? What I read to you at the very beginning. That he came that he died on a cross, that he was buried, and on the third day, Jesus Christ was raised by the Father. And if you place faith in that, confess it with your mouth. It's the same confession Thomas made, my Lord and my God. Oh, Jesus, you're my Lord and my God. I, I, I'm not just confessing it with my mouth. I believe it in my heart that you were raised from the dead. Oh, that doesn't mean I'm perfect. I won't be perfect until I get there. And neither will you. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no other conditions. There's no other conditions. Those are them. He's done it all. He's done it all. So I would ask you today, where are you? Where are you coming from? Where are you coming from? What are you thinking is it still all hogwash to you? Is it still all, ah, you guys are weak-minded people. No, we're not. We've studied it out. We know what it says. And no one's been able to prove it wrong. No one. And they've been trying. You will be saved. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. Thank you so much. for letting these truths be written down for us that we might know that we could be saved. John said it over in 1 John again, these things I wrote that you can know you're saved. Man. And Lord, I pray that someone, if, 
You're dealing with someone's heart this morning, Lord. I know you are. We don't do this for theatrics. We do it to watch people's lives be changed. You're in the, you're in the business of changing people's lives. If there's someone here this morning, Lord, that doesn't know you, they've never placed faith in you, they came because somebody made them come, maybe. Oh, they're here for a divine purpose. They're here to hear these truths. And I pray that simple little illustration about the cloth. Something's got to get dirty to get something clean. I hope it haunts them if they don't accept you today. And I love what you said to King Agrippa. Paul said to him later, when Agrippa said to him, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, if it's five minutes, if it's a short time, or if it's a long time, I, I don't care, but I also, I, I want you to hear me this day. I would wish to God that were there in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Right now you're in chains to sin if you've never accepted him. You can be freed up and never be in chains again. You've got to accept him. Lord, I pray for that believer in the room who hasn't been walking with you. Oh, the reminder of what you did on a cross, the resurrection, you took care of all of it. The reminder that they might turn from their sin. Get on the right side of sin. That's what we want. In Jesus' name.